please turn your Bibles to 1 John with me as we begin this book that we've been anticipating beginning for, for quite a while now, 1 John. And as you turn there, uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, um, our, our ushers, you can just kind of raise your hand. Our ushers have some Bibles, and they'll kind of be looking around, and you can raise your hand. Or you can just kind of grab one as you uh, leave the service this morning. Uh, we're in 1 John. That's kind of toward the end of your Bible, just right before you, you get to Second uh, John comes right after it. Third John, as follows that, and Jude and Revelation. So you're kind of toward the end of the Bible as you're in First John. I encourage you to come back this evening. We'll be uh, here at Five Points for our Sunday evening service. We're going to be talking about God's providence. Uh, God's providence is control over all things. What does that mean for God to be sovereign in control of all things? What does it mean in terms of the, the decisions that we make, what does it uh, do? Do we have free will of God sovereign over all things? What does it What does it mean practically as we deal with evil in the world? And so there's there's going to be, I hope, some good uh, conversation this evening as we think about God and His character and what it means to love and worship a sovereign God. So that's that's our time together this evening. I encourage you to come back out. Let's uh, stand in honor of God, if you're able, this morning as we read just the first few verses of, of 1 John as we begin our, our series here on authentic fellowship in 1 John. John begins his epistle with these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You may be seated. May God encourage us this morning through his word. Uh, let me pray for us as we continue our time of worship. Uh, Father, you are a, a loving and, and holy God, and we would ask that this morning that you would give us the ability uh, to worship you with our, our whole being. We, we pray that we would begin to understand uh, what fellowship is, and what it means to be in relationship with you, first, and then what it means to be in relationship with one another. We pray for those uh, who are hurting, uh, for those maybe who, who are struggling with understanding what it means to be in relationship with you. Uh, give them your grace. And help them to, to love you and to know you. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin 1 John, I think it's kind of important to know the, the series title that we're, we're coming up with for the, the whole study of 1 John is Authentic Fellowship. Authentic Fellowship, a, a series in 1 John. And actually, uh, Jana Chambers came up with that, that title. Uh, I sent out kind of a, a description of what we're going to be doing, an outline of, of our time, and, and, and she suggested that based on some things I said. Uh, her husband, Mike, Pastor Mike, who does worship, said, we should call it Authentic Fellowship, a three-year journey through First uh, John. <laughs> Jana is much nicer than her husband, Mike, obviously. But uh, we are talking about authentic fellowship, what it means to be in relationship with one another. 
what it means to, to truly be a part of not just a fellowship with God, but fellowship with his community, fellowship with a community of faith. And this morning we're talking about pursuing joy in fellowship. We're going to be getting that this morning, and we're going to look at it next week as well. And, and what I think it's important to do is this. Not only do I want us to intellectually understand, here's what true fellowship looks like, and here's how I can know that I'm, I'm part of the fellowship of the family of God, but it's important to know why that's so important and why God desires us to pursue fellowship. What I hope happens after this morning and, and next week is that you have a, a fervent passion to be pursuing your joy in the fellowship that Christ has created in his church. This is a very exciting time in the life of Bethany Community Church. A lot of things are happening in the life of our church. If we don't understand what true fellowship looks like and how to pursue fellowship that God calls us to pursue, a lot of the exciting things that are happening will be for naught. So what I want to do in our time this morning is really just talk a lot of background information about the, the book of 1 John that I think is going to help us be able to, to dive deeper in it in the coming months to three years that uh, God would have us in 1 John. Uh, what I want to do then is be, I want to begin talking about, talking about the background. There's kind of three or four things that I want to share with you about the background to 1 John. The first thing that I want to talk to you about as we talk about the background to 1 John is uh, who the Apostle John was. The Apostle John was one of the two sons of Zebedee who are mentioned in Scripture, and Zebedee was probably a very wealthy individual. We find that he uh, owned a fishing company, he owned multiple boats and employed people, and he was a, a wealthy individual. And so John and his brother James were the sons of Zebedee, and they probably came from a wealthy, prominent family. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, we see that, that, that uh, the Apostle John knew the high priest in his family. And so John was probably from a wealthy, prominent family. And John, as we encounter him in Scripture, was someone who loved the truth. He was zealous for the truth. The first time we encounter John in Scripture, I believe, is in John chapter 1 the Gospel of John chapter 1, and uh, we're, we're reading about Jesus calling his disciples, and it says that uh, the, the John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and one of John the Baptist's disciples was the Apostle John. John had, had heard somehow John the Baptist's teaching, and he had recognized that there was truth in what John the Baptist proclaimed, and so he became one of John the Baptist's disciples. And we see that he's standing with John in John chapter 1 verse 35, and uh, John the Baptist, in verse 36, looks at Jesus as Jesus is walking by, and he looks at his two disciples there, uh, Andrew and, and John, and he says, look, uh, behold, the Lamb of God. The apostle John hears John the Baptist say that. What does he do? He follows Jesus. He followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, you will see. And John follows Jesus. John is someone who, who uh, desires to pursue truth. In fact, later, he'll, we'll see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calling him to permanent discipleship. In Matthew chapter 4, 
Jesus is going, uh, going along the Sea of Galilee, and it says that he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Matthew tells us, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Jesus comes by, says, follow me. Apostle John doesn't hesitate, follows Jesus. John is someone who is passionate about the truth. And what we see as we go through the gospel accounts and read about John, we find that his his zeal for truth sometimes got him into trouble. In fact, Jesus is going to give John and his brother James a nickname. He's going to call them, we see in in Mark chapter 4, he calls them sons of thunder, kind of like this uh, nickname he gives them to kind of, I, I think, gently chide them a little bit. When they're getting kind of excited about things and zealous, he'll say, hey, hey, you guys, uh, sons of thunders, why don't you kind of bring it down a notch, right? He calls them sons of thunders. John's passion for truth sometimes leads to a, a zealousness that, that causes him to be very judgmental. In fact, if you want to keep your finger there in First John, turn to the book of Luke that we spent so much time in. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going through, he begins to, we see Luke chapter 9 is a, a pivotal chapter in the gospel of, of Luke, and John comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 49, and he says, Master, this is Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 49, John comes to Jesus, he says, Master, verse 49, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And so John's like, Jesus, here's this guy, and we saw him, and he was, he was using your name, he was acknowledging your lordship, but he isn't following you in the exact same way that we are. And so I told him, knock it off, buddy. And Jesus turns and rebukes him. He says, no, no, don't, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is, is for you. John's understanding of what it looks like to follow Jesus because he's so zealous for truth sometimes causes him to be judgmental and not understand the the wideness of the kingdom and that that other people who acknowledge Christ's lordship are going to follow Jesus in a way that's different than John. Look at the very next story. Remember this? The days drew near for Jesus to be taken up and he set his face to Jerusalem. He says he sets his, his face toward Jerusalem, he's, he's traveling, and he's going through, and there's a village of the Samaritans to make, pre- to make preparations, or he sends messengers to do this. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So he's going through Samaria, and the people in Samaria understand that Jesus' message is in line with the message of the Old Testament prophets, that he's, he's Jewish in his, in his orientation. He affirms the truth of the Old Testament prophets, and they want nothing to do with him. His disciples, James and John, see this, and they are not happy. Remember, John is one who's passionate about truth. Here are these people who are denying Jesus' authority, and they're, they're not in line with the truth. And so he comes up with this plan. He says, hey, Jesus, he and James say, Jesus, how about some fire from heaven here? Let's deal with these guys. Fire consuming, what, yay or nay? What do you think? Jesus says, nay. Right? He rebukes them. He says, John, you don't, you don't understand this time that we're in, this time of kingdom proclamation. John doesn't understand the wideness of, of Jesus' message of mercy, and so he fails to, to rightly grasp what Jesus is about. So here's John. He's a guy who's passionate about truth. His passion for truth sometimes causes him to be very judgmental and not understand the true nature of Christ's kingdom. 
And he's also, this son of thunder, he's also a super aggressive guy. In Matthew chapter 20, you see some of this arrogance and aggressiveness. Matthew chapter 20, uh, Jesus is uh, talking to John and James's mom, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And she asks Jesus for something. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And so now she's again probably a prominent person, and, and she probably been financially involved in Jesus' ministry. In her mind, this isn't an unreasonable thing to ask. James and John are probably involved in this as well, encouraging her to ask this. Say, hey, give us these positions of prominence. We've been engaged in your ministry. We're, we're loyal, and we want, we want advancement in this kingdom thing that you're, you're proclaiming. What, how does Jesus respond? You don't know what you're asking, he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And the sons of Zebedee say, yeah, we're able. And he said, look, you will. You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The ten hear this, they're indignant, and Jesus responds with, with this message that John is going to need to grasp. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John's an aggressive dude. He's a guy who's passionate for truth, and his passion and his zeal for truth causes him to be judgmental, to not understand the, the, the invitation to participate in God's kingdom to all. And, and, and he, he, he's right in some of his, his understanding the exclusiveness of the gospel, but he's wrong in terms of understanding the mercy of the message. And his zeal for truth causes him to be aggressive and, and self-promoter. But in God's grace, John is dealt with. The pivotal moment in John's life is the same pivotal moment that should be true for all believers. It's the cross. Something radical happens at the cross for John. John at the cross is told by Jesus to, to take care of, of his mother. He, Jesus bestows that responsibility upon John. And the, the Gospel of John talks about John's encountering the, um, the evidence at the tomb after the resurrection. He, de he describes his moment of conversion and says that he, he goes to the tomb, he stoops to look in, he, he sees the linen cloths lying there. Simon Peter goes in and he follows him. He went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. It says in verse 8, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and what? He believed. There's a moment of transformation in John's life. I'll talk more about what happens there after his, after his, his ministry there. But John after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he's not the same person that he was throughout the rest of the Gospels. 
we encounter John in the book of Acts. It's very interesting. As you flip through and you see John in the book of Acts, you don't see a guy who's promoting himself. You see a, a person who's taking a, a role of leadership in the church of Jerusalem. Yeah, but at the same time, he's allowing others to, to take roles of leadership. You see him with Peter. It's Peter who's talking, and, and John kind of begins to fade into the background through the book of Acts. He's a faithful servant of the Lord, but he's not the same aggressive person he was before. Church tradition and I believe the historical and biblical evidence tell us that John leaves Jerusalem and goes to Ephesus, somewhere in the Asia Minor region, probably Ephesus, and he becomes a pastor there at the church in Ephesus. And as a pastor there in the church of Ephesus, something called sanctification takes place in John's life. I believe that sanctification happens in our, in our lives in, in, in some really neat ways. As we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're, we're called to, to die to self. In other words, it's not like God says, well, whoever you were beforehand, uh, come and, and uh, come to the cross and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to kind of tweak you a little bit. I'm going to make, you know, if you were a a, uh, you know, you're a person who's a, a loud person, I'm going to make you loud for Jesus. If you're a person who's uh, passionate about money, I'm going to give you a biblical principles to be passionate about money. That, that's, not how, that's not how coming to the cross works. When you come to the cross, there's a, a radical transformation that takes place in your life, and it, it, the old self dies, and we, we saw that this morning as we talked about baptisms. And so that's what takes place. But one of the cool things I think that takes place also is, is God takes our personality and, and he we, we die with him, but at the same time, he, he takes that personality, he begins to, to sanctify it. And so some of the, before we're believers, there's, there's some aspects of our personality that, that cause us to, to pursue a, a life of disobedience. And, and God takes those same things and radically transforms us. And now we're able to use those aspects of our personality for God's glory. And so with John, John stays a person who's passionate about truth. As he's a pastor there in Ephesus, sanctification takes place in his life, though. So he's, he's still a passionate person, but he's, he's passionate in a much different way. It's not a self-centered passion. It's a, a Christ-centered passion. It's something that I hope takes place in all of our lives, right? This, uh, this last week on Friday, someone came into my office, and it's a, a person who goes to a different church, and, and we were talking about some things. I said, yeah, I have a book about that. And I pulled out a book, and I I gave him the book, and, and then as I, as I kind of flipped through it, I was handing to him, I realized that I'd, I'd underlined a lot of things. And, and this person and I come from a little bit of a different, you know, different traditions, different, di- different, different understandings of some, some uh, doctrinal points. We both still believe and love the gospel, of course, but there's some, there's some points on which we, we differ. And I realized that um, it wasn't, you know, mid-30s Daniel who wrote the notes. It was mid-20s Daniel Mid-20s Daniel could kind of be a jerk sometimes. And as I handed the book to my friend, I said, hey, um, I don't know what I wrote in the margins of that book. Just read it with grace, okay? Maybe some grace that, you know, mid-20s Daniel didn't show, all right? There's this process of sanctification that I think God is taking me through that, that, that I hope he takes all of us through, right? And, and, and John goes through this process of sanctification. This guy who's zealous for the truth, and it can cause him to be very judgmental and uh, zealous and aggressive, 
it changes. It's, it's a different type of passion that he has for the truth as he's a pastor there in Ephesus. In fact, it's, it's kind of cool. This guy who in Matthew chapter 20 is telling his mommy to go ask Jesus to give him a good spot in the kingdom. When he writes the Gospel of John, probably while a pastor there in Ephesus, you know how many t- times he mentions his own name in his Gospel? Zero. In fact, as he's talking about his life, there's, there's this neat thing at the very end of the Gospel of John. I should have mentioned this earlier. We're going to be all over the place this morning. We're going to talk about the background. But in John chapter 21, he, he, you can tell that kind of an older guy is writing this. This is John as he's been a pastor for a while, and he's, he's reflecting back on events that happened years ago, and, and he, he's, talking about, he's talking about his relationship with Jesus, and he's kind of reflecting as he comes to the end of the gospel, and Jesus has just been talking with Peter in John 21, and John writes this. He says, this is the apostle John writing this. It says, Peter turned and saw and this is how he describes himself in the gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who'd been reclining at table close to him, and it said, Lord, who is that? Who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, then Peter looks back, and there's, I don't know why John's following them. You know, maybe he's like, I'm going to write this down someday. He's following them. That's what they're saying. No, Peter looks around. There's John, and Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to die a very... Uh, very, uh, very, very hard death, the type of death that he was going to glorify God with. And so Peter says, well, what about this guy? And Jesus said, look, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And John writes, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who's written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John says, I don't know what my future holds, but I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I love him, and I'm writing these things to you so that you can believe him as well. So John, as he matures and he's sanctified, he's still passionate about God's truth. In fact, if you look at the, the, book, the, the, the epistles that he writes, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he mentions truth more frequently than any other New Testament writer. He loves the truth. In fact, there's a story of him whenever he was in Ephesus. There's a story of him going to the bathhouse with, with someone, and they, he goes in, and he's getting ready to take a bath, and he sees that a, a heretic is there, and it, it's said that he flees the bathhouse. He says, let's get out of here, lest the whole bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the heretic, the enemy of, tr- of truth is in there. John still loved truth. <laughs> but there's another word that appears in these epistles more frequently than in any other book. You know what that word is? Love. Isn't that neat? Not only does truth appear more frequently 
in First John and his writings than any other word, but, but truth appears more frequently here than any other New Testament, or love more frequently here than any other New Testament book. Truth and love. So that's the Apostle John. I, I, as we talk about the background, that's kind of the story of his life. Here's another thing I want to talk to you about, his ba- about the background to First John. A, a second thing here is, is uh, what's happening in the churches. So John is a pastor here in, in Ephesus and in, in Asia Minor, and he's kind of has oversight of so, several of the communities of faith there, I think, as, as part of the, the apostolic witness there in what's now today modern Turkey. And he's there in uh, this region, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's his pastor in Ephesus, and something begins to happen. Maybe you've, you've heard a little bit about different theories of how Christianity began, early Christianity. And, and some people, and you maybe have heard this, this is like the, the theory of the Da Vinci Code or some other uh, documentaries and, and things like this. Some people have this idea. Some people say, well, in the very beginning of Christianity, there were a lot of different forms of Christianity. There was this form over here, Paul's and John's and, you know, th- this heretical group, well, what we would call today a heretical group, and that there were all, you know, the gospel, the traditions is represented in the gospel according to, to Judas and Thomas or whatever. And so there's all these different traditions, and eventually just one of these traditions won out over all the rest of them, and that's what we call Christianity today. That's one theory of how Christianity began. But I don't believe it's the true understanding of what, how Christianity began. The historical evidence, I believe, shows us, and certainly the biblical evidence shows us this. There was, there was Christianity. There was an understanding of who Jesus was. There was Jesus and his, his authority that he bestowed upon his, his disciples, the apostles, and there was this foundation upon which he built his church. And so there was this, this one group that was, that was the church, and then from that group, there became uh, splinters off of it. And John, living in the first century, ministering there in Asia Minor from the church in Ephesus, he begins to see these, these splinters away from this truth that he held so, so dearly. It causes him a great deal of pain to see these people whom he's loved and ministered to, whom he's poured his life out into, it, it, it pains him as he sees them begin to, some of them, groups of them, pockets of them, begin to, to pull away from the truth. There's a early heresy called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnostics came in many different forms, and, and probably full-blown Gnosticism wasn't in, in John's day, but there's kind of like pre-Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught, and, and some of the related heresies taught that um, there was special knowledge that Christians could receive or that people could receive. And once you received this special knowledge, you understood more than just the ordinary Christian. And they, they believed that the material world was evil, and, and they taught some wrong things about Jesus and, and his material body. They, they believed that, that uh, Jesus, uh, the, the Christ, didn't, didn't suffer materially. That was a, a human being, and then the, the Godhead came later, and there were just some weird things that they believed and taught. And John's people, whom he loves, begin to, to believe some, some strange things about Christianity. 
as we read through 1 John, we see some of the things we know that they believe. We know that there were some, some arguments regarding knowledge and connection with Christ, and these, these, there were some people that were coming to the church and were saying, look, um, there's these ordinary Christians, it's kind of this, this basic level, but, but there's this like super Christianity that we're a part of, and we have this special knowledge, and if you come and follow us, we'll teach you like the real Christianity, the super spiritual Christianity. You, you've kind of learned the basics. Now, come with us and we'll teach you the real story. And they began teaching there's these two classes of Christians, those who, who don't have the special knowledge and those who do. Come away from, from you know, John's old-fashioned stuff. Come with us and we'll teach you the truth. So they're creating division within the church. As they teach that, there's also some moral implications of what they teach. You see, they were, they were teaching that, that there was a separation between the, the physical and the spiritual, and the spiritual is where it's really at. It doesn't really matter what happens with your physical body. And so there was some, so there was some immoral behavior that they were encouraging, that the people were engaging in. And they said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Live however you want. and that, Just be spiritual. So you can do whatever you want physically. Serenthus, the, the heretic that I mentioned earlier, he, he taught some things about the millennial kingdom being this, this place of, of sensual immorality and delight, and it was just some messed up teaching. They also taught some, some things were wrong about the person of Jesus Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, one commentator writes, the Son of God, now come in the flesh, and that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, uh, some of them taught that there was Jesus, and then there was the Christ, and those were two separate people. And the Christ was with Jesus during his earthly ministry, left on the cross, came back after the cross for the resurrection. The things that these heretics were teaching affected the gospel. They affected fellowship. And you can see, I'm sure, some parallels with our own culture, right? John is, is writing to, to a church that, that had some people in it believe that there was special knowledge that they had that the average Christian couldn't have. And really, this special knowledge was a denial of the truths of the Christian faith. There was a, a disdain for, for doctrinal purity that, among the people that John is writing to. The same is true in our day. To the people that John is writing there was a belief that holiness didn't matter. The same is true in our day. We're in a culture that, that, that te- even an evangelical culture that teaches that the pursuit of holiness is not something that's all that important. John is writing to a church divided, to a church that doesn't understand what true relationship and fellowship and unity even look like. The same is true in our day, right? So, we've talked, as we've talked about the background, we're seeing something about the Apostle John, we're seeing about the situation in which he's writing. A third thing about the background that I want you to understand is, is the, the problem for John's audience. The problem for John's audience is the same problem that many of us have today. The problem for John's audience is, who's right? There's John, 
And John, was, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, pretty sharp guy, but he's getting older. And now there's some new teaching. And, and what these guys are saying sounds pretty good too. And, and in fact, what they're saying, this, this pre-Gnosticism that they're teaching is right in line, it's, catch this, it's right in line with the philosophy of our day. The Gnosticism not only affected early Christianity, but also Judaism and, and, and Roman thought and Greek. So the things that these new teachers are teaching, boy, they sound so right. And, and so here's the problem for John's audience. Okay, of these churches, of these understandings of truth, what's right? And not only that, but once I decide what's right, and I'm sure this is a struggle that, that, that some of you have had as well, not only once I decide what's right, how do I know that I am a part of it? Do you see that? It's one thing to say, okay, uh, John's teaching is correct. Now, um, how in the world do I know that I'm, that I'm truly part of that church? There's all this division and dissension going on, and, and some people are saying, well, you're not a Christian. Other people say, well, you're not a real Christian. How do I know, am I a Christian? a profound issue, right? I hope, I hope, I hope you had the privilege of, of being here earlier during the, the testimonies of, of these, these uh, just fantastic young people. I had the opportunity to, to talk with them in, in my, my study, and just hearing that their expressions of faith uh, just was overwhelming for me. There's one testimony you heard this morning um, from, from a young lady. I don't want to embarrass her by saying her name, but, but I, I hope you caught what she said because I think it's not something that just a young person struggles with. I think it's something that, that all of us have struggled with at, at one point in our lives. She said that, that uh, at one point she, or at points in her life, even her young, young faith, she's wondered whether she, she did it right in terms of becoming a Christian. She says, you know, I, I remember praying this prayer and, and asking Christ to forgive me and placing my trust in him. She said, but I, sometimes I've wondered if I've done it right. You ever wondered that? Did I do it right? Did I, did I get it right? And if, if, if becoming a believer is simply placing your, your trust in Jesus Christ, how, are there things that should be true in my life if, I, if I've done that, if I've done it right? So John is going to write to the believers here, and he's going to describe to them how they can be confident of the truth. And he's going to do it in a, in a loving way. That's the fourth thing I want you to see about the background. Is not only is it, it, not only to see John's life and how John's life story affects how we view First John. And not only do we see the the, the, the situation in the, in the churches and and we see John's uh, the the problem for John's audience. The fourth thing I want you to understand as we look at this letter is, is that this letter is John's answer to that problem. For the first eighteen hundred years of church history or so, there was no question that that John wrote this. And I would say that the historical attestation of this the the fact that there's been no real serious question of John's authorship leads us to understand that John wrote this. We also see that, that the person who's writing 1 John, even though he doesn't mention his name, which I think is in character with John and his humility, he's a person who speaks with, with an authoritative voice. He's someone that understands that he has some authority to speak into these issues. 
He's going to use similar themes and languages, the gospel of John. He's going to talk about the beginning. He's going to talk about love. He's going to talk about truth. Those are words that also feature prominently in the gospel of John, as well as his epistles. He's going to talk about eternal life, and he's going to talk about the world and the believer contrasted with the world. He's going to talk about doctrine. These are all things that consume the gospel of John as well. So this letter is John's answer to this problem that the churches are facing. And as you go through this letter, you're going to find that in fact, I encourage you to just kind of read through this a couple times uh, this week, or at least once. It's just kind of sit down and, and, and read it. If, if you read it out loud, it would take you about 15 to 17 minutes or so. But as you read it, there's this really sweet tone to it. The Apostle Paul, whenever he writes a letter, he kind of thinks a lot more like I think. You know, okay, here's point one, got it, okay, good. Here's point two, got it, good. Now here's point three that builds on point two, and here's point four, now here's some application. It, it, it's a linear progression. Uh, that's not how John writes. John is like, he's like this old pastor. It's like your dad or something, and he loves you. And he sits down with you, and he has a couple things that he wants to share with you. And so he talks about one of them for a little while. Then he moves on to the second. Oh, and there's something else I want to tell you. Too. And he goes back to the first. And then he kind of goes to a third one. And goes back to the second. And, and it's, just this, it's just this sweet letter. An old pastor sharing some things with people he loves very dearly. Things about how they can know that they're part of the true fellowship. As we go through this letter together, I want you to understand three tests of authentic fellowship that John is going to lay out for us. And as you, you think about these, these, these marks of authenticity, of, of true, genuine biblical faith, I hope there's an excitement as we go through these, go through these tests and see them interwoven together throughout the, 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 this epistle of 1 John. John's going to be talking about something, and there's going to be a couple things that he mentions, and then he's going he's to use those as, to springboard into another topic, and as he talks about the topic, he's going to use some of the same words to talk about something different, then he's going to amplify on that, and he's gonna, it's just going to be, it's going to be a fun study. We're going to see these, these marks of authentic, true Christianity and true Christian fellowship. And let me just lay out what these are for you this morning, and we're going to continue to go through them in the months to come. The first test that we're going to encounter is something called the truth test. The truth test. What this means is that we as a church commit to the truth of the gospel. What that means is we say that it's only by grace alone, through faith alone, and the God-man Jesus Christ alone that you and I can be saved. And John, as we're going to encounter him going through this, this epistle, is going to say that there are some people who deny these truths. There are some who are communicating through their, their lives and, and through what they're, what they're teaching that, that they don't hold to the gospel. 
In fact, let me just kind of give you an example of this, this, this truth test. Hopefully you're in 1 John. I know we're not getting to really the, the first uh, little bit until next week as we, we continue our, our, our series here. But um, listen, to, listen, to his, uh, listen to his concern with, with doctrine. Beginning in verse 5, he says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that, that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. So, so, so there's, there's the truth. And then he says, if we say, if we say, in other words, if we, if we say some different message, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we're lying and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, and then verse 7 is right, but if we walk in the light. Verse 8, if we say, in other words, here's again something that the, the heretical teachers were teaching. If we say we have no sin, that's a false message. We're deceiving ourselves. Instead, we're to confess Verse 10, if we say, like these false teachers are saying, we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Here's what I want you to see. Being a part of the true church means that there is doctrinal conviction. There is truth and there is falsehood. And the true church recognizes the true gospel if you are going to be a part of, of Christ's true church, there is a necessity to believe certain things. Uh, we cannot say that, that, that Christ's message is, is untrue or that Christ's message is just uh, one truth among a, a, a bunch of truths. Uh, the person who's part of the, the true fellowship, the true church, says, look, I'm going to, to pass this truth test. I'm going to commit body, soul, all that I am to the truth of the gospel. And that's the first test that we're going to see occur again and again and again throughout 1 John. Do you believe the truth about Jesus Christ? John is a guy who is passionate about gospel truth. And you and I, if we're going to experience true fellowship, must begin there as well. The truth test. We commit to the truth of the gospel. It's foundational it's key to growth. It's why, uh, as a church, we, we, we place such a premium on, on expositional teaching of God's Word on a, on a Sunday morning. The Christian life begins with a right understanding of the truth. The second test we encounter is the obedience test. The obedience test. The obedience test means this, that we commit to living in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're growing in obedience to the truth. And, and you and I live in a, even in a Christian church culture that, that diminishes the need to pursue holiness. There are so many extremes that we can, we can pursue, right? I mean, there's one extreme in the Christian life that says, okay, uh, I'm going to be holy, and holiness means following these, these rules, and so I'm going to memorize all the rules, I'm going to follow all the rules, and I'm going to be holy because I got the rules down. And we rightly re reject that as legalism. We say, look, that's not what a relationship with God looks like. A relationship with God is not based upon simply following a bunch of rules. A relationship with God begins upon understanding this truth of who Jesus is and placing our trust in Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not legalism, okay? And so rightly, many of us reject legalism. The problem is that we em sometimes embrace something that is just as wrong as legalism. 
And that's a belief that holiness doesn't matter. And oftentimes, the church becomes a place where we, we flaunt grace, so to speak, and we, we embrace a lifestyle that's not marked by humility and transparency about sin, but a celebration of it. We don't, say, we don't just say, look, I'm not perfect and, and I'm, I'm still relying upon God's grace to pursue holiness. We say, you know what? This is who I am and I am so grateful I have the freedom in Christ to, to live this way. And we, and we describe a lifestyle that's well, what Jude calls, uh, we turn God's grace into lawlessness. The language that we use isn't reflective of holiness. Our connection with the world isn't a connection that reveals a pursuit of holiness. The, the, the things we find entertaining and delightful and find joy in don't reflect a life transformed by the gospel. The obedience, test looks, the obedience test says, look, I'm going to commit to live in obedience to my Lord Jesus Christ. John is going to say some hard words, and boy, we're going to have some, some fun times going through some of these verses. But for example, let me just throw this out here to you. First uh, John chapter 2, John is going to say this as he talks about the obedience test of fellowship. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Lord Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Then here's some hard, hard stuff. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How do you know if you know Jesus Christ? He says... If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, here's John's passion for truth coming out. He's a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, little children, as John might lovingly say to you, fellowship with God is a beautiful thing. Fellowship with his church is something to be eagerly desired. If you do not have a desire to pursue obedience, you are not in Christ. If you do not have a desire to be growing in holiness, you do not know Jesus Christ. Third truth, the third test that we're going to see here is the love test. The love test. This occurs again and again through the gospel, or through the epistle of 1 John as well. We commit to sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, this is where a lot of people want to begin, right? <laughs> Man, I just want to love everybody. And, and yeah, we do. But it begins by coming to, to the truth, obedient to the truth. And an essential mark of whether or not you're truly obedient to the truth is your love for others. 
If you say, yeah, I understand truth, I've got my doctrine down, and I'm obedient to God, and yet your relationship with others is marked by a harshness, by a judgmentalness, by a, a lack of desire to sacrificially lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you do not know the gospel. The gospel is going to work in you to cause you not just to know truth and not just to want to be obedient, but, but to have a desire to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are, I, I believe this is going to be a very convicting truth for so many of us, a very convicting test for so many of us, if we do not know and love our brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a possibility that we are not in Christ. I love this church. I love this church. And I love the fellowship that God has provided for us here. I was reading a, a blog this last week, a blog article, and, and I, I mentioned it, and, and maybe you saw this as well. It's, it's, it's by a, a man named Donald Miller who I think wrote some very sad things. He, he talked about how uh, he's a very prominent uh, Christian author, and, and he talks about how uh, he, he doesn't go to church in this, this. He wrote two articles and mentioned the first and kind of, I, I looked to see if, he looked back on his blog to see if he kind of, after mentioning not going to church, I thought, well, maybe he just kind of said that the wrong way. Maybe he'll come back and come around and say, hey, man, I just kind of said this the wrong way. But he really doubled down and said, yeah, I don't go to church and uh, don't, you know, don't judge me because of that. Uh, listen to some of the things he said. And, and I'm, I'm saying this not to, not to trash this guy or anything, but just, just because I want to contrast this with, with the beauty of what fellowship can be. He said, uh, he said, most of the influential Christian leaders I know who are not pastors do not attend church. He says, some people thought that because I hadn't been into church in years, I have no community, that I lived in isolation. That's untrue. My community is rich, deep, spiritually sound, gracious, sacrificial, and at times exhausting. I've worked to create my community, communities everywhere, and every church you've attended was a community that somebody sat down and created. I happen to think a lot of them look exactly the same and have no problem making mine look different, but it's still a community. Is he right? Is he right? Do we all just have the ability to sit down and kind of create our own community? Or is there something special that takes place in Christ's church? and the assembling together of us, and I would argue, yes, there is. There's something beautiful, and, and, and we're going to see this even more next week. God's call on you is to pursue joy in fellowship. To say, I have a desire to experience the joy that can only be experienced by being in fellowship with other believers. And how do I know that I'm, how do I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm part of the fellowship? There's the, the truth test. Am I, am I understanding God's truth, the gospel, and committed to it? There's the obedience test. Am I desiring to continue to walk in obedience? Does my life reflect more and more the, the life that Christ lived and walked? And do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the good news of your son Jesus and thank you for our ability to walk in the truth and give us your grace in these things that are beyond us. We know that, that these things cannot be true in our lives apart from the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us miraculously. Cause that to be true of us, Father, we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.